Wow, what a season, huh? <laughs> we did it. We did season two. Yeah. Dave, thank you so much for everything you've done to help us get here, but it's been quite a ride. It has been. As per ride. tradition, we have Dave on our on air this time, not <laughs> behind the scenes, not behind the computer. And so Dave Lachance, our sound engineer, will also be our third co-host with us today as we reflect on this big season we've had. Thank you both for having Thank you, me Dave. again. It yeah. is an honor to be on this show for the second time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <Da-da-da-da-da. well. laughs> I think I think everybody who listens to podcasts knows that yeah, there are hosts and then there are people who make the show happen. Yeah. And you know, yep. so we can't reflect on it just as hosts. We need the person who makes it happen. <laughs> Also, because also, <laughs> let's this. be real, Dave has heard every single episode way more than we have. A few yes. times. We just kind of yeah. like said it. Yeah. <laughs> and then we Dave will be like, he says, uh, yeah. here it is. This is what you really meant to say. Yeah. There it goes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so how are we feeling? How, well, how has, has been, season two been for you guys? This has been really uh, interesting for me. And yeah. I think a little bit hard. Yeah, definitely hard. Because, you know, our season one, for those of you who are just Catching up with us. I hope you're not just catching up with us. That means you just, there's a whole lot to go back and listen to if you're just coming in. But <laughs> you're welcome I, regardless. But you're welcome regardless. Uh, but our season one, we actually had an organizing structure mm-hmm. behind it because we were bringing people in to respond to kind of these design principles that we had. And we knew their work and how it related to the design principles so we could really talk that way. But when we started season two, we realized that that framework was a little restrictive in who Mm -hmm. we were bringing into the room Mm -hmm. and that if we were really interested in this much broader question Mm -hmm. about shaping public life, we needed to bring other folks in. Mm -hmm. So this season was more like what do you call that thing when you go out and you're looking at scavenger hunt? Yeah, scavenger hunt. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. it really was. Yeah, we're out there just looking for things, trying to figure where things are. Yeah, by inviting people in and saying we think this might work. Yeah, we you might be doing this. Right. Obviously, we thought you should be. Obviously, (laughs) we wouldn't have had you on the show, but but we really wanted to understand if you really should be or if not, and and you know from Jump Street. Our first assumption was actually knocked down. Yep. Yeah. From the very beginning, right? And we all went back to the drawing board and said, "Uh oh." <laughs> yeah. That's right. <laughs> we were like, "Wait, wait, wait! What happened there? Was that how? What?" <laughs> <laughs> you know. And it was kind of it was amazing because we thought, you know, like like you were just saying, Caesar, we kind of walked in with like, "What is the work that public ins- that private institutions or non traditional actors are doing in shaping public life and public spaces?" And our first recording was with Eric, and he was kind of like, well, they shouldn't be shaping public spaces. Yeah, and he just said, look, if your basic, you know, fundamental operating principle as an organization is transactional, then you need to kind of like stay out of the public space. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, he didn't say it quite that way, but in a sense, that's what it was coming down to because the public needs relational spaces. Yes. Right. And yes, transactional spaces are important for certain kinds of things, but they're not they're not the same. No. And by having people who are in transactional spaces kind of step into these civic spaces, which are supposed to be relational, they're both confusing what they're doing and they're confusing the public yeah. and not being able to deliver on what actually right. the public needs. Right. They undermine the relational nature of spaces that we need to have. Yeah. And they simultaneously kind of greenwash transactional spaces and so are kind of diluting and diluting and diluting 
both of those environments. Right. Yeah. Right. What made his point really hit home for me was he talked about how important the clarity of a transactional space is, that it's a mm. clear thing that we know and can touch and can perceive. And when you get into yeah. the relational space, there's so much more messy stuff there mm -hmm. and how yes. the idea of somehow conflating the two or letting them bridge into each other was scary mm -hmm. to him was actually really new to me. And it, mm. it, it just, it sparked a whole new pathway for thinking about this whole season for me that, that I'm not sure I changed my mind about what, who needs to be stepping <laughs> into where, but it, I mean, it muddied it for me. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I thought, you know, and I, you know, I was kind of like, okay, well, that's Eric. What does he know? Yeah. <laughs> and then Dave, David comes in the room and just like, next thing we know, we get hit over the head thing twice. Twice. <laughs> he had the same exact language. And it was not prepped. For the listeners here, it was not at all prepped. We literally got on a prep call with David Wertheimer from the Gates Foundation. And we're like sitting on this call. And he, on his own, is like, you know, I was reading the new book by Melinda Gates. And I really began thinking about how organizations should be either transactional or relational. And, we're going, and we were like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Gabe, like again? <laughs> how did that just happen? Did you guys, are you and Eric hanging out? Like what's happening? <laughs> yeah, it was pretty amazing that we had to kind of contend with this. Okay, I think there's something real here Yeah. that uh, we need to pay attention to. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if you guys will remember this or if you even want to go there, but right after we talked to David, you, you kind of started to do a commentary on it. And you went mm -hmm. you went so deep into what he was talking about, letting your duty as a worker be, sink mm. into your life almost, right? It's, it's like yeah. changing the boundary of, oh, I, I work here. That's into it. Into like, this is my home. And, and it, that's right. it turned into something a little scary. And that's right. I think it's, I think it's very personal for me, right? Because I think I... I'm sometimes really bad at separating my like personal life from my work life because I have chosen to make my work life do more than pay my bills. Like I've chosen to use my work life as a way of like finding my best people, you know, and like stimulating my brain and feeling like I'm making a difference even in the smallest ways in my greater ecosystem. And all of a sudden when I heard that out loud coming from David, I was like, oh shoot, like what I'm really doing here is then using something that's supposed to be transactional as a relational jumping off point. And like, there are so many dangers there, starting from like my personal, like mental health, right? And my work-life balance, which I know many of us are grappling with, but it even gets into more like, well, then what does that mean for organizations? What does that mean for organizations if all of a sudden they're using transactions as a way of yeah. trying to push relational spaces forward? Is that even healthy? And I think why that, why that felt so strange for us, is, at least for me, is because there's so much about how are we making more of our institutions, more of our organizations much more connected? Yeah. Right? Which means it had to be relational. Yeah. But I think the thing that both David and Eric were saying, well, I mean, they weren't saying, let's dehumanize our organizations. No, they were right. saying, no, we want them to be human, we want them to be relational, but when they are engaged in the work they do, yeah. they need to be clear yeah. about what kind of work they're doing, That's if right. it's transactional or relational. Yeah. And if it's transactional, 
then they need to be cautious about entering certain kinds of spaces. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, there's the other aspect of this, which is like, we're not trying to dehumanize our organizations at all, but we are craving this sense of connection. And, you know, as so many of our organizations grow at these rapid speeds and we see scaling and scalability as somehow a proxy almost for impact, we begin to like in scaling lose the human elements of what it means to be in a community of workers. Yeah. And I think that's sort of like the piece that I struggle with, right? As I listen to Eric and David, and then, you know, pretty soon we were talking to Lindsay about this as well, where it's like, how do you think about scaling and impact and impact investment and not lose the human elements of this? Because, you know, one thing that I'm going to just pull in here for the listeners that I've heard you say, Caesar, is about, you know, you've been with MIT for so long, right? And there used to be a time when MIT was a fairly small organization, like everybody kind of knew each other at the administrative level or the faculty level. And so when you want to get something done, you could kind of just I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but you'd kind of walk to someone's office and kind of be like, hey, so-and-so, like, can we do this? Can we make this happen? And now there's so many intermediating steps and protocols that you have to go through because MIT has rapidly expanded. And it's great that MIT has rapidly expanded, right? They're providing education to so many more people and they have maybe funding to provide more financial aid, et cetera. But the cost of that is the organization does not run in a relational way as much which then makes it a lot harder and you get the sort of like red tape that exists and, you know, politics that exist in both private, semi-private, academic, nonprofit institutions. And then you have to create other smaller subsets in the organization exactly. to take care of those relational aspects and or to, I don't want to say counteract, but to be a balance in some sense to the other parts of the bureaucracy. Yeah. And so you actually start moving into these much more transactional space thing relationships. Yeah. Transactional spaces yeah. around things that before you could enter through a relational space. Exactly. And that's where we are in this country, right? You know, this country has grown over the years. When we started out we were, you know, it was it was a place of small little towns where people came together uh, more often than not because they shared a religious belief. Yep. Uh there were a set of uh, rules about who could participate. Yeah. Mostly men, mostly land-owning men. Yep. And they built a system. It mm-hmm. was highly relational. And they mm-hmm. built in infrastructures around that highly relational mm-hmm. things that they put in place. Mm-hmm. Right. And over time, we've been working to make those things that they've put in place uh, more inclusive, more yep. equitable. We're finding that they some of them can't adapt enough. Yeah. And so we have to rethink the whole system again. Yeah. Because we now have an intention to be inclusive, mm-hmm. and that requires us to do different kinds of things. And so, you know, I think institutions, as they grow up, that's what happens. Yeah. You know, things start small, they get bigger. Yeah. We have to start to rethink that. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, later on, you know, we do you know, talk to some a couple of people who are in really large organizations. And I think what you hear from that and what you learn from that is some of these new organizations kind of were aware of that in the beginning. Mm. And they started to figure out this notion about how do we actually kind of pay attention to this informal, relational yeah. transaction at the same yeah. time? How do we be clear about some things about where we belong, where we don't belong? Right. And right. so we don't erroneously lose our power around what we know how to do to do things we shouldn't no. be doing. Exactly. Exactly. 
And it's, uh, yeah. I think a lesson learned sometimes we don't even see that sometimes that's what people are actually negotiating in some of these new companies. It's a huge lesson learned and it's a tricky trade-off, right? It's yeah. like the maturation is so, I don't want to say inevitable, but so gunned towards. But as you mature as an organization, it's like, how do you not sacrifice the relational nature, the relationships, the sort of trust, the buy-in that made you who you are in the first place. Yeah. And I think that we began to talk about that with Lindsay a little bit, you know? Yeah. You know, and with work that they're doing, you know, at social capital markets, really trying to yeah. actually be a convening space where people can actually take on exactly. this issue. Exactly. Right? So what happens when you are, you know, you're working, you know, in capital markets and you also have a social responsibility, then what does your work start to look like? Right. What does your investment start to look like? And it's the same thing Monique was talking about exactly. in terms of mass housing. You know, we here we think of, oh, mass housing, housing, but actually they're a bank. Right. Right. They're, they're a, a financial institution. They're a bank. Right. <laughs> yeah. And who basically say, in order for us to be successful at a bank, we actually have to be in the work of building and sustaining communities. Right. Yeah. There's something about scaling here that just keeps yeah. to, it keeps coming up in, in a lot of these episodes with how when things are small, that relational space is what keeps you alive. It's what builds the mm. trust, right? And mm -hmm. and there's such power, and this is something that Lindsay talked about, to recognizing that that's, that smallness, that, that small scale is really great. And we don't have to get into this mentality of growth, growth, growth. We have to grow at every cost. Because mm -hmm. with that, we can kind of venture into that messy space in a little bit cleaner of a way, I guess. Yeah. Now, that's a really great point, Dave. She talks a lot about like the the push that venture capital or the pressure that venture capital creates on different you know startup organizations and the pressure that it creates for them to, like you said, rapidly expand at all costs when some of those costs could be really severe and they could be that trust erosion, that relationship erosion that got them to be building you know together in the first place. And the irony of it for me is like when you, think about venture capital, you think about the way in which often they look for the co-founding team as the indicator of success. They don't look for the product necessarily, right? And yet they will push that team to scale until that relationship has been impacted, probably negatively. And I mean, that negative feedback loop makes such little sense. And it's like, we all recognize it makes little sense. And yet, what are the actions that we're taking to rectify it? IDK, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, I think that's what one of the reasons why, again, these conversations were so powerful to me. Like, they were across the board, coming from different industries. It, I felt like we we're doing a little ethnographic, almost digging, right? Like a little bit of market research right, right. <laughs> across these different private players and how they conceptualize the public. And they had completely different stories often that don't necessarily create a beautiful, succinct, you know, plot line. And that in itself was so telling for me because it was like, these are people that are grappling with really big problems around whether it's maturation, around scaling, around transactions and relationships, but in their own unique way. Yeah. And no one's really found the right answer. There's no right answer. Right, but they're all, I mean, struggling with the same thing, right? Yeah. And it's like, remember then, when we started talking with the work that they're doing at the New York. Yep, the New York uh, Restoration Project. project <laughs> right? You know, but the work that they're doing are really saying, look, okay, we work in public lands. Right. And we work at parks. Right. Uh, and yet using 
what they do yeah. or what the responsibility is to actually then start to knit together different public relationships, Amazing. right? And really being purposeful about it. Yeah. And same thing with Nicole, right? I mean, there's no yeah. sort of saying like, okay, I know what I know what my world is. Yeah. I know what my lane is. Yeah. And if I'm clear about that, yeah. then I can actually create opportunities yeah. to actually bring the public in in a different way. Right. Yeah. Like Desiree and Candace, yeah. what they're mm-hmm. dealing with, it's also, you know, it's, it's public-supported radio, right? They're on WBUR. Right. And they're kind of grappling with finding their lane, finding what this means that they're dealing with this public space, that they yeah. are creating kind of this really powerful great potential public good right? and the way that they go about that. And I loved that interview because they were really candid about it and really vulnerable yeah. in just yeah. talking about what it's like to handle that space and, and to have the power mm-hmm. to say, oh, we need to really think about how we enter into this. Mm-hmm. Well, something you just said that just, I think it's also very unique about them because we've been talking about this power of knowing your lane mm-hmm. and they know theirs and they know theirs is in trouble. Yes. <laughs> and they're creating yeah. a new lane. They're actually, yeah. they're creating a totally wow. different I didn't lane. I think of it that way, yeah. Right? Yeah. They said like, okay, our lane is, you know, the traditionally public broadcasting. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what we do. We're really good at it. And if we stay in this the way we normally think about it, yeah. we're gonna disappear right. because what did she say? We're only touching twenty five. Only twenty five percent of the people in our area even know who know we are. Know who we are, yeah. We don't, and we don't know what percentage of twenty five support them. Right. 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 And that group right. is a much older group. Right. And so now they're saying, okay, we've got to, we've got to create something different. Yeah. Right. Not that we're going to stop doing what we do. Yeah. But we need to create something different yeah. in order to make what we normally do relevant to more people. Yeah. Yeah. And it's almost like this parallel track they're going to be running down now. Yeah. And, and you know, I think, I mean, I loved the interview with them and I loved the interview with Deborah Martin as well because yes. Deborah was the first time, I think, in, of you know, of the many interviews we were having, it was the first time that I began to, like, kind of scratch the surface of what it meant to use the, like, goods that you have access to. Yes whether it be the land you have access to, or as Nicole later said, the keyboard you have access to, to, to do more than just build the thing. Yes. Yeah. Right? And to actually use the goods you have access to as a way of engaging people that may not otherwise be a part of that creation process. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's hair-raising for me, right? Because in some way, we all have some goods, some resources, some lane, right? And... Am I thinking actively about how I can use the lane that I've been given? The mic in this case, right, is like my lane, for example. Mm-hmm. The mic that I've been given to engage other people in the creation process? I don't know. Like, I could definitely do better, right? And I and I don't know that I've always seen the goods that I have access to as a way of not, not necessarily, like, solving anything, but bringing together a community of solvers. Well, what I'm kind of realizing right now is that we set out on this journey of saying, well, what are other people doing? What are these private actors doing? And I think what we're finding is that people are finding out what they can contribute to the notion of rebuilding our public, our civic life, uh, given their sphere of influence. Exactly. And it looks different in different places. Some of it has large-scale impact. Some of it is very small and immediate. 
But I think what we have evidence here of is that it's happening. Yeah. That people are doing it. We may not necessarily look at it that way. Yeah. I mean, who would have thought, you know, that, well, actually, Morris Code keyboard right. is part of rebuilding us kind of public muscle. Our public muscle, right? Yeah. Because we're giving, we're creating another opportunity for someone to have voice right. in this. Right. Or that creating this garden is a, you know, and bringing different people together around this activity is another way of doing it. You know, exactly. Or by how we think about building community centers and housing complexes. This is another way we think about it. Yeah. So in that sense, it's really encouraging. Yeah. Right? It's really exciting to know that, you know, it's happening out there. And maybe, you know, the work that needs to be done is, and maybe that's part of what we're doing here, is letting people become more aware. Yes. Of all the different ways we are actually doing this work. So people can stop feeling a little long about it. Exactly. Oh, this is like really, this is really hitting me. <laughs> um, I took a class, you know, last semester with Mitch Weiss at mm-hmm. the Harvard Business School. And he has this one line um, that, you know, he's he's said in articles, in news media, he said it in class as well. And he talks about the difference between the public entrepreneur and the private entrepreneur. Mm. And he talks about the public entrepreneur as someone that has to create something with nothing. Right? Like the public entrepreneur, the person who works in a government space, doesn't actually own anything <laughs> necessarily, mm-hmm. right? But they're trying to bring together the right people in the room to make the housing project go up, to make the school function better, to whatever, yeah. right? Versus the private entrepreneur is someone that is trying to make something with something like they actually are the owner of a particular resource and i feel like that kind of thinking about like public ownership or lack of you know and the public entrepreneurship versus private entrepreneurship kind of translates really well to like our season one and our season two yeah right because season one you have all these people that by virtue of not actually physically owning any of those resources have to focus on how they convene people that is the like forced nature of their work versus private actors who have control to resources haven't been forced in the same way, cornered in the same way into thinking about convening people. And here we had the opportunity to like move the conversation forward, push the conversation, ask the question about what that convening looks like. And I'm so humbled, honestly, to hear about these various organizations that are you know, like we've been saying, like using those private resources that they own to convene, even when it's not what they're cornered into doing. They've seen the importance of it. They've recognized the importance of it. And they've seen themselves as an individual or as an organization, as a part of this like greater civic life. And so therefore convening becomes a natural part of that conversation. Yeah, I think you really nailed it, especially with this kind of season one versus season two thing. Because I remember after every single season one interview, I would come away and just like be flying high. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and we have had some tough interviews in season These two. These have been tough. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of it is is grappling with, you know, we've chosen some amazing ones that are humbling to look at, to, to like yeah. really think about. They're, they're not, this is not their job. And they, right. their, their return on investment is not the traditional one. Right. They have to appeal to powers higher than themselves and still fight mm-hmm. for this because they think it's good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there are, 
universes of other private actors out there who aren't even coming close to this, to yeah. whom the phrase, you know, stay in your lane means I'm not even going to touch that stuff with a 10 foot pole. Mm-hmm. Right? right. And it's that difference has become so stark. And, and it's really great that we have, I think, been able to find and acknowledge some people who are able to, you know, grapple with this, to own it in that yeah. way to get out of their lane and still stay in their lane, you know? Yeah, no, and I think, you know, to be fair, like these conversations and these interviews this season weren't tough because of anything that our guests like did or didn't do, right? Right. Like the conversations itself were lovely. I like loved having every single person we had in the studio, but I think what was challenging about them was like, it was so evident to me that these were questions that, that they hadn't been asked before. Yes. Yeah, you know? questions they've been sitting with. That, that they'd been personally sitting yes. with, but that right. weren't necessarily surfacing in the natural course of their work. Right. And I feel like we've kind of, you know, we've been digging, we've been digging, and we've like, you know, struck this like little flake of gold. Yeah. And we're like, where's the rest of the nugget? You know? Yeah. This is my like California 49er coming out. <laughs> like, like, thanks, third grade history. Like, you know, but it's seriously, like, I feel like we're just, we're getting these like little gold flakes of people and these yeah. little gold flakes of organizations in this season. And I'm like, where is the greater nugget? Like, where is that buried? You know, where is the responsibility of the non-traditional, the private, the industry communities to think of themselves as civic actors? And it's happening slowly but surely. And I'm really fortunate that we, the three of us, are able to push that conversation forward, you know? But I think that's why a lot of this work for me in the studio feels like a lot more than just work. It feels very deeply personal because we are all, you know, I think someone said recently in our interview, Lindsay, it's, it, she was like, it's not just anyone's problem, it's everyone's problem if this doesn't work. If yes. we aren't thinking about the racial wealth divide, if we aren't thinking about how impact investments are not impacting fairly right. or fully or equitably, et cetera. And, and I think that really resonates with me. These conversations we're having aren't just impacting the Gates Foundation. They aren't just impacting NYRP or Google or WBUR. They're impacting all of us involved from the studio to our listeners to just people that don't even realize WBUR exists. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, what do we do about that? Yeah, and it's, you know, that's what we sat yeah. with. That's what yeah, we sat with. That's it. And I think that's why we asked Tony to come yes. in and close that's us out. we asked Tony to come in. You know, because Ugh. Tony, Tony. kind of just brought <laughs> us back to a different place. He did. You know, he was, he was an architect and a musician, talking about his work in the favela in Brazil. And from a really deep point about the power of people in their own communities to both reimagine and to reignite. And interesting enough, we didn't know this in talking to him, but he was another manifestation of this thing about staying in your lane. That's right. Because he and his partners, they knew what they knew how to do. Yep. They brought that little piece. Yep. Right. And then engaged with the public yep. I mean, as architects. Yep. And designers. And artists. And artists. And they, so this, this, yep. is what, this is what we do. Yep. And we're willing to work with you on this, but this is what we have. What do you got? And then they pulled together this mm. amazing thing mm-hmm. to basically take a dump and recover it and turn it into a park and build this whole art and cultural festival that's now 
has its own self-sustaining process around it. And uh, if by chance you didn't catch the show, Tony not only talked to us about this work, but he composed live impromptu music <laughs> to explain it. And uh, as we're reflecting here, his interview with us was him yeah. reflecting yeah. on the work that he had done. Yeah. And really, I think, bringing a sensibility and a groundedness to all of this. It really feels like a treasure that we have, Tony, in our feed. <laughs> just that that exists oh, yeah. where it does. It's just the sweetest <laughs> thing to be to think back that that, you know, that that's the punctuation mark for this season. It is. Yeah. And, it, and I think he covers so well. I mean, he, you know, is really sharing with us this like sacred space where he's feeling live for us on a piano. I mean, that's what he did. Yeah. And that is like such, I mean, that's such a gift and honor for him to want to share that with us. And I really think that in being able to witness his sharing, I felt like he was actually in this like very meta way, reflecting a lot of the like struggle and tension, but then also the like resolution and healing that I felt over the course of this season. You know, like I said earlier, these interviews were very deeply personal for me. And I don't think I'm alone in that. I feel like, you know, both of you have also been right there, really feeling Absolutely. all yeah. of the feelings. And, you know, for Tony to just, like you said, Dave, put a period on it and and kind of help us, like in yoga, my instructor would say, bring us to our final resting position after having gone through so much through these interviews and and this journey this season is, was like really incredible. And I think that the people who've done this work, not just ones we interviewed, but the many others who do this work day in, day out, can resonate with that sort of feeling of like constantly feeling, you know, both tense, but then also energized and then also finding some sort of healing yeah. in it. Yeah. All right, Lucy. This has been incredible. Thank you, Caesar. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for carrying us through this season. Thank you both. Here's to both of you. Such a treat. Thank you all for listening. We are so excited that you've been with us for now 10 episodes, and we hope you stick along for our next upcoming season three. Thank you so much. We're a production of the Department of Urban Studies and Planning at MIT with support from MIT's Office of Open Learning. Our sound is produced by Dave Lashansky. Our content by Julia Cubrera and Misael Galdamez. I'm Ayushi Roy. I'm Susan McDowell. And you can find us online at themove.mit.edu. And on our Medium site at medium.com forward slash themovemit, as well as our Twitter and Facebook. Thanks so much. Goodbye.